Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. I, I think there's basically been no agency that has offered really complete clarity about uh, how crypto ought to be regulated. Um, and it's not as though this is an impossible task. If you look around the world at other first world countries that have robust regulatory regimes, there's a lot of clarity in different places, which shows that it can be done. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, unnamed trading know. firms who are very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate pond. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, we get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. This week, uh, we're running a little bit short. I think uh, it's actually, because it's conference season, people are getting sick. You might be able to hear my voice is a little bit sickly right now. So we've got a, a skeleton crew today, but we've got a very interesting guest that's going to keep things very lively. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Joining us, special guests, we have Will Warren, Lord of Liquidity at Zero X Labs. And you've got myself, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. So Will, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom and Will actually have, uh, there, there, there's a lot of backstory here in the relationship between uh, Matcha, the Zero X settlement that we're going to be talking about today, and Tom. Tom, do you want to go into that a little bit, what the yeah. uh, origin story is here? I feel like that sounded somewhat uh, nefarious or something like that. There's a whole backstory. It might be. Um, it might I be. was uh, an early employee at Zero uh, X, and I was a product lead there for two years, worked on uh, two different versions of the protocol, and uh, worked on uh, the aggregator product, which turned into Zero X API and, and later Matcha. So Will and I have known each other for a while. Uh, we are actually just catching up about some of the Zero X mafia and uh, the other Zero X employees who are now doing cool stuff in crypto. So I'm excited to have him on today. So actually, Will, why don't you quickly explain what is Zero X for those people who are sort of coming in, who only really know NFTs or what, you know, whatever it is, uh, who, who are not from the 2017 era. Um, explain to us what is Zero X. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Zero X is a protocol for exchanging ERC-20 tokens in a peer-to-peer -peer way. Uh, it was, you know, one of the kind of first systems designed on top of Ethereum, where there was kind of an off-chain component and an on-chain component, uh, 0x protocol specifically specifies in order format for swapping one ERC-20 token for another uh, and all of the kind of parameters associated with that trade. And this order can then be you know, ingested within a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain uh, to settle a trade atomically between two parties. Got it. And tell us as well about Matcha and how that fits into the suite of products under Zero X. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot has changed uh, over the years. So yeah, we, we've been around for you know seven years at this point. Uh, my co-founder Amir and I started working on Zero X back in in late 2016, and in, in the early years, and, and you know this was a really exciting time. This was when Tom was was leading product. You know we were really focused on building 
a protocol. So an open uh, protocol that anyone can build on top of, anyone can create their own ERC-20 token marketplace on top of the protocol, build like a front-end user experience on top of it. And over the years, we, you know, got closer and closer to end users and building the things that they need. Uh, and we started shifting our focus from uh, building this unopinionated piece of public infrastructure for swapping tokens to also building a hosted service on top of it uh, called 0x Swap API. Uh, and the Swap API is, you know, basically giving developers exactly what they wanted and needed. Uh, they wanted to focus on building their consumer product. They wanted a simple way to support swapping between different assets within that product. Uh, and they didn't want to have to deal with smart contracts and all the complexity that comes with it. Uh, so our Swap API is just a, a way to very easily kind of plug in a, an API that kind of looks and behaves similar to others they've worked with in the past, uh, developers have worked with in the past, and uh, it aggregates liquidity across you know 100 different decentralized exchanges, most of them probably familiar with. And ultimately, uh, as we kind of worked our way up the stack and got closer and closer to the end user, we, we started building uh, Matcha, which is a consumer product and a front-end interface uh, at matcha.xyz. And this is essentially a front-end that sits on top of our APIs. And it's uh, you can think of it as like a search engine for tokens and liquidity. So it's a it's a DEX aggregator. Um, you know, I think people who are familiar with one inch yep. or you know, I guess Uniswap X soon to be also a, a DEX aggregator of some kind. It's funny actually when I when I first got into crypto and when I, when I first came into space full time in 2017, uh, the first meetup I ever went to was an SF meetup. I think it was like off meetup.com. It was like, literally, I just like Googled crypto meetups in San Francisco. It was a presentation by Zero X. And I remember there was this big, you know, you, I think it was you. And there was a slide deck that was like, everything is going to be tokenized. And in the future, there's going to be a billion tokens and a laundromat's going to have a token. And, you know, this country's going to have a token. And I was like, wow, we're fucking going places. This industry is amazing. And uh, it was it was a very different time. Obviously, there was a you know a, a uh, there was there was a degree of bullishness that has waxed and waned over time with respect to the tokenization story. But um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about not just broadly about DeFi, but specifically about what happened over the last couple of weeks when the CFTC announced a string of settlements. So there were three settlements that were announced. One of them was with uh, one of them was with you guys with Zero X Labs. The other one was with uh, Open, the uh, on-chain options protocol. The third was with some kind of some protocol called Der Deridex, uh, which I'm not familiar with. And they were all very small settlements, so all in the range of like 200k to 150k, something something along those lines. And as far as I understand, all three of them were for offering in, basically not being registered as an FCM or a futures clearing merchant. I think is what it is and offering uh, derivatives that should otherwise be under the supervision of the CFTC. What I'd love to get from you, Will, is just give me the narrative of, you know, you guys are out there building matcha, you've been doing this for years. How did the CFTC get in touch with you? What happened as you were going back and forth? Tell us the story of how all of this took place. Yeah, it isn't a very dramatic story. We essentially received an email from the CFTC. And as you can imagine, um, that's always, you know, scary as an entrepreneur when you, uh, you know, re receive any sort of contact from from one of these agencies. But 
Uh, essentially, the CFTC Enforcement Division reached out to us and they had issued a Wells notice, uh, basically alleging that Zero X or, or Macho was violating the Commodity Exchange Act uh, by, and this is really the meat of it, by facilitating uh, margin trading uh, for retail traders. And so, to be clear, the the specific the specific claim they were making was that you guys allowed the trading of this two X levered Bitcoin and two X levered ETH asset. Which was who is the issuer of this thing? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so there's just some token out there. That's yeah, I'm like, actually not sure. There's some token that's two X levered Bitcoin or two X levered ETH, some ERC twenty, and this was tradable through Matcha's front end, right? And they and it seemed like there were two tokens that were issued by the same issuer, and they tracked down these two tokens. They're like, aha, these are derivatives, and you are allowing the trading of derivatives. Therefore, you're in violation of the Commodity Exchange Act. And so, okay, so they contact you. They say, hey, you're in trouble. What happened next? Yeah. So interestingly, they, they actually didn't uh, identify any specific tokens when they first reached out. It was it was a somewhat ambiguous uh, message we received from them. They said, "Hey, we you know, we we think you're uh, you know violating this the, the CEA, and uh, we need to talk." A Wells notice. Uh, essentially, we had you know kind of two weeks to put together a letter to kind of respond to their the allegations. If we were able to kind of uh, assuage their their concerns. You know, perhaps they wouldn't recommend uh, moving forward with an enforcement action. But typically, a Wells notice is you know putting you on notice that we're thinking about recommending an enforcement action against you. Uh, we weren't exactly sure why at the time. You know, next step, we started to work with uh, an external uh, legal counsel, Wilkie. And they, they really facilitated all of the direct communication between the CFTC and, and ourselves. But yeah, there, you know, uh, there was quite a bit of back and forth. This process began in February of, of this year, and it only resolved with kind of the public announcement earlier this month. I see. So when they reached out to you, this was basically like FTX had just collapsed a couple months ago. All the fraud stuff was coming out. Kind of sounds like this lines up with when the enforcement from the, the White House really started getting aggressive, uh, both on the SEC side, and it sounds like as well on the CFTC side. So they sent you a vague letter, not exactly saying what it is that they're mad at you about. D did you get a sense of how they decided that you guys were violating the CEA? Was it sort of like, okay, give us everything you got, and then we'll tell you what you're in violation of? Was that kind of, was it sort did it, did it feel like they were sort of fishing for something to get you with? So actually, we just really weren't sure what it was about. We, we had no idea. And so, you know, when we engaged with Wilkie, uh, you know, kind of the, the first task was, okay, let's talk to them. Let's, let's find out, you know, what they're, they're concerned about. And so Wilkie, you know, they contacted the CFTC to kind of understand the nature of the request, kind of explain what we're building uh, and what our business is focused on. You know, it became clear at that point that there were a few things they were kind of interested in learning more about. Um, but in particular, the primary concern was, you know, access to leverage tokens in Matcha. Uh, and so when we reached out to them, it, you know, it, it did sound like we had perhaps gotten caught up in, you know, maybe another investigation that had been going on. Um, and, they, you know, they had some questions for us ultimately kind of resolved and, and didn't really lead anywhere. But the thing that, you know, they really did focus in on uh, was, you know, this allowing of, of uh, you know, trading these leverage tokens within a retail kind of consumer product. 
part of the um, you know the concern of the investigation is all around like serving U.S. users, right? And there was a lot of sort of back and forth um, in the announcement that came out around um, you know, what is good enough for how do you know if you're serving U.S. users? What is good enough when it comes to you know IP blocking or detecting IPs or detecting geo? I mean, how do you guys think about that? Given that you know it's like zero X protocols on Ethereum, and you have this UI, like like w- walk us through how you guys think about sort of the U.S. bit to this, and and specifically, you know, how what were their concerns around um, um, serving U.S. users based in? You know, this this piece. How do we address this issue of of U.S. based people accessing these things, and you know, people outside of the U.S. Uh, you know, being okay to access these things? Uh, well. It's it's it is worth noting too that you know a majority of, of Matra users um, aren't based inside the U.S. and and so you know it is kind of a, a minority that uh, kind of of our customers that this could potentially apply to. We didn't really have a clear answer uh, around how to proceed uh, once they reached out, and so you know naturally we we engaged with them and kind of over the next couple of months we we cooperated with the CFTC kind of explained uh, how Matcha works and, uh, you know, all of kind of pieces of the technology stack. And around May, uh, the CFTC kind of came back and offered a settlement and a $200,000 fine if we agreed to prevent violations of CA in the future. So at this point, it's like, okay, how do we prevent violations of the CEA in the future? Uh, it, this isn't something that there's necessarily like an instruction manual for. What we did is uh, we we worked with you know our legal team and with Wilkie and we we put together you know basically a proposal on how we could you know automate token screening and essentially screen out leverage tokens from being accessible to folks in the U.S. and we we shared it with the CFTC for feedback. They got back to us and and they offered constructive criticism. Uh, we kind of adapted our process in response to it. And ultimately, we arrived at, you know, a policy or a, a procedure that we felt comfortable moving forward with. And we, we obviously didn't get any sort of kind of official blessing from the CFTC. They couldn't say, now that you have put this procedure in place and you're preventing U.S. folks from accessing leverage tokens, you know, we're never going to bother you again. Uh, you know, definitely not that. Um, but it was overall like a very constructive conversation. And we, we arrived at a solution that we felt, I think, satisfied both parties. When you were doing this outreach to the CFTC and sort of putting together this explainer of how uh, Matcha, Zero API, Zero X work, did you get the sense there was a sophisticated understanding from, from them um, ahead of time? Or were you doing education as, as part of this and maybe clearing up misunderstandings or clarifying things that they, they did or did not understand? Yeah, so they they certainly, yeah, over time, as we continued engaging with them and and really uh, dug deep into our products and the technology, their understanding went from probably not very deep to they definitely understand exactly, you know, the kind of constraints that we're running up against. Um, And yeah, so, you know, for Matcha, I guess, kind of the big the big constraint here, Matcha really is kind of like a block explorer. Uh, so in the same way that, you know, a search engine like Google kind of crawls and indexes all the different websites that exist out there on the Internet and make it really easy for you to find them. But they don't necessarily know the content of every single website um, from the get go. It's kind of a similar process. So so Matcha is is like a 
search engine for tokens and liquidity. So every single ERC-20 token that exists on the different networks we support, you know, we have scraped and indexed that token and you can search for it through Matcha. Do we know what every single one of these, you know, 4 million plus tokens represents? We don't. Um, And so, you know, coming up with a way to screen for leverage tokens and to make sure that they're not available for U.S. folks, that was uh, something that we had to work through. At the end of the process, we felt like they had a very good understanding of uh, kind of the practical constraints and how Matcha works. And overall, it felt like it was a pretty constructive conversation. So if you if you zoom out a bit, I think the way a lot of people took this, uh, the announcement of these settlements was that, hey, you know, we, we were all very excited about getting the CFTC is a regulator instead of the SEC, but it turns out the CFTC is just as bad and everything sucks and it's all going to hell and blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, what I'm hearing from you is that actually the CFTC sounded reasonable to a first approximation in that one, they didn't go after you for having zero X protocol uh, interact with leverage tokens, right? Obviously zero X protocol itself is permissionless and lives on chain and, you know, there's no front end that's being maintained. That's like making decisions about which tokens to list. And so they, they were, they were sophisticated enough to make the distinction between matcha, which is a sort of, you know, managed service that has backend servers that like does stuff as opposed to zero X protocol itself. It's a little bit of a ticky tack foul to be like, Oh, Hey, you had these two tokens that didn't do much volume and that nobody really cared about. Uh, but they were accessible through the front end and therefore you're, uh, you know, in violation of CEA. And obviously the settlement is, pretty de minimis. And so it, 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 it does look like they were looking to make a statement and they made the statement effectively, but it sounds like they were sophisticated enough to understand, first of all, how it all works, how it all plugged together. And second, to be able to relatively constrain the enforcement action to a part that allowed you guys to continue running Matcha and also let uh, Xerox protocol itself basically continue on unperturbed. Uh, what, you know, in your interactions with the CFTC, did they feel constructive? Because it sounds like you know, they were giving you guys feedback on a proposal to avoid uh, future CEA violations. It, it sounds also like they were open to hearing, like, why, you know, this this wasn't as big of a deal as it might have otherwise been. The settlement itself, like, they didn't tell you, hey, shut down, like, that you guys are obviously, uh, you know, don't deserve to exist. It doesn't sound that bad. And I think the, the way a lot of this was being heard by crypto Twitter was like, oh, my God, the CFTC is after us as well. Yeah, I mean, so... You know, when when they initially kind of reached out to us, they they did issue a Wells notice, and that that is like a, a fairly aggressive stance. And but you know, I, I think we you know engaged with them in good faith from from the outset. We we wanted to explain you know some of the the, the realities that we're uh, facing by offering you know a product like Matcha, and you know it did feel like the conversations were were positive and constructive. It didn't feel hostile. And I think a big part of it, of that was that we we went into the conversation uh, looking to educate, looking to proactively address any of these issues that were really important for them. Being a good actor and and, and trying to engage with them in good faith, I, I do think that made a big difference in terms of the tone. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, so here is the speculation part. So obviously, okay, you've you've laid out what happened kind of step by step. My speculation is that it must have been that basically like JanFab after FTX was collapsing and, you know, all this stuff was happening. I mean, this is just before the banking crisis, if I recall. There was probably a very broad mandate from the White House to say, 
go, you know, go, go scalp some people. Like let's, let's make a statement to show that we're being tough on crime. Uh, crypto is wild west and everybody, whether it's sec, CFTC, FDIC, OCC, everybody just go start, you know, knocking people around and, and, uh, taking bodies. And the CFTC sounds like this was their idea of like, okay, well, what, what can we, you know, what can we do? Who exactly can we, um, you know, uh, uh, shake down and say, ah, you were, you were in violation of the CEA. Like all, all these violations that they rounded up for this thing, they seems pretty small. The settlements are small. Like these are not exactly, um, these are not exactly industry shaking outcomes of, okay, well, we have to delist, you know, these two levered tokens or whatever. But it, it, my guess would be that's where it came from. That's probably what the impetus was. But as time drug on, you know, it was about six months, it sounds like end to end uh, for this whole thing to get to a settlement to get announced. It sounds like maybe, you know, the, the, the level of aggression probably moderated over that period of time where they were like, okay, well, look, here's what we got. You know, we can, we can jack them up on having, uh, you know, a couple vials of derivatives on them. But other than that, you know, there's really, there's really nothing that egregious here. That's my speculation. I don't know if you feel comfortable speculating on what you think was happening at the CFTC. Honestly, I don't know. Yeah, like I really don't know. It could it could very well be that, you know, all of the chaos that ensued with with FTX um, kind of, you know, decaying over time. But yeah, I, I really don't know. Like it's it's pretty hard to speculate, you know, uh, how, in, you know, these kind of large regulatory bodies function internally. They're, they're quite large. Um, you know, the CFTC has teams in different parts of the U.S. Uh, we were specifically engaging with like the New York enforcement team, I believe. And so, you know, I, you know, it, it very well could have followed from, you know, the FTX and, and Luna craziness, but yeah, I really don't know. Did you at all consider fighting this and maybe taking it to court instead of settling? I know it was not, you know, these two tokens did basically no volume for matcha, but you know, it, it seems in some ways on, on face value, you know, ridiculous. Like you said, like matcha is a block explorer. You allow people to make transactions, but you yourselves are not custodying it. You're not swapping it. You're not really, you know, it's, it's, it is like, you know, ether scan in, in some ways. Yeah. I, I think ultimately, you know, we're, we're a small team, you know, we ultimately, we, we kind of felt like the outcome of, uh, of the entire kind of experience was something that like we could live with. We aren't kind of a Coinbase where we're, we're kind of a publicly traded company. We have you know, massive amounts of revenue coming in. Like we, you know, we aren't default alive. We are, we are, you know, getting to the point where we're building a sustainable business. And for us, it's super critical that we remain focused on our customers and uh, getting kind of pulled into, a, you know, what could be like a multi-year and extremely expensive uh, lawsuit where ultimately, like, I, I don't think we, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, what the CFTC was asserting, the, their jurisdiction over leverage tokens, you know, I don't think we, you know, we don't contest that. And for us, we're not building, you know, a business around uh, leverage trading or uh, derivatives. That's not our focus. We're, we're focused on offering the widest coverage of tokens. Uh, and, and really, that's what we were focused, you know, working hard to, to continue offering on Matcha kind of throughout that entire process with the CFTC. How can we offer access to all the different tokens that exist out there in the world to the degree uh, that we can do it in a compliant way? Actually, Will, can I, can I ask you, so working, working with your counsel, how much did it cost you? Um, over those six months, just ballpark. Was it like a million, 
500K, uh, how much did that end up costing you just dealing with this whole thing? Minus the settlement itself. I honestly don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, it was probably relatively expensive for us. Okay. Yeah, on the order of- So I, I mean, I would assume if you guys, yeah, if you guys actually went to court, it would likely be in like, you know, between five and $10 million, I would guess, to fight this thing end to end with the SEC. Or sorry, with the CFTC. Yeah, I, I can understand why you guys would not fight this, especially given that it's not core to your business and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense um, to uh, expend a huge amount of money over it. It is unfortunate that, you know, all the agencies essentially are, are mostly focused on startups, right? Because startups, it's very easy to get them to roll over. They can, you know, kind of carve out little pieces of their business and say, aha, this is the bad part. We're going to cut this off and, and you settle and then you never touch this thing again. And startups, of course, don't have the resources to be able to uh, defend themselves against, you know, government agencies that have basically unlimited resources. I, I heard actually that, so if you recall, I think it was, um, I want to say it was early last year or maybe it was uh, 2021 that Uniswap ended up removing leverage tokens from their front end. And I heard that what happened was that uh, they also got a visit from the CFTC and the CFTC basically said like, hey, you guys are giving access to these lever tokens on your front end. If you do not remove them, we are going to sue you or something along those lines. And Uniswap was like, oh, well, you know, they, I think they more or less had the same reaction you did. We don't care about this. Cool. We're going to remove them. Um, and you, you might remember the, the, um, the news announcement a little while back that Uniswap had removed these leverage tokens from the front end. Um, and my understanding was that the CFTC never moved forward with a lawsuit against Uniswap, presumably because it just wasn't, you know, they, they weren't being demanded to like, hey, go take some names and go, you know, go get some headlines. And I guess now they are. So it's a little bit unfortunate and, and you know, obviously kind of capricious for if that's in fact what happened. And I'm speculating uh, or at least, you know, uh, uh, relaying rumors that I've heard uh, that if that's what happened to Uniswap back in the day, that uh, then, then kind of switching their story and saying, actually, well, if you have a, a tiny violation by having a couple of uh, tokens on the front end, we're not going to politely come to you and say, hey, can you please remove these? And we believe this is in violation. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's not willful. Like you guys are not getting much of your volume from this thing. You're just doing, as you mentioned, a block explorer. You know, you, you would think like, okay, well, be friendly. Just tell them, hey, take this off. And then you guys are not in violation anymore. So it does seem like this is optimized around making headlines, which is, you know, it is what it is. They're they're under pressure themselves as an agency, but it makes one think. And we talked about this, Tom, I remember during the tornado cash story is, um, you know, Etherscan, Etherscan, obviously it, it allows you to see any block, any token, any, you know, anything on Ethereum, right? Um, and if you connect your MetaMask to Etherscan or, you know, any Web3 wallet to Etherscan, um, it allows you to interact with any ERC20 token, right? And so an American could go on Etherscan interact, you know, connect their Web3 wallet and then go and buy a leverage token on Etherscan. Uh, they could also go and interact with Tornado Cash on Etherscan, which is which is sanctioned, which is not even just to Americans. It's sanctioned, uh, I mean, if, from the US perspective, it's sanctioned for anybody. It does seem that in order to be fully consistent, you would need to say the same thing is true for Etherscan, is that like Etherscan is in violation of the CEA. Etherscan is in violation of sanctions. It's a little bit of a far-fetched argument perhaps, but... You know, insofar as, as Etherscan does allow you to connect to your Web3 wallet and interact with any contract, I don't know, I'd love to get your guys' reactions to that. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a, like a, uh, you know, uh, taking 
something kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of absurd, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it feels like we're just agreeing on the arbitrariness of what abstraction should be liable, right? Like, Oh, is, is Chrome liable because MetaMask is on, you know, an extension is your ISP liable because they relay the packets. Like, you know, it's, we, we agree that's absurd, but somehow, you know, the uh, settling with, with matcha is, you know, fine. I, I just feel like, you know, overall, I, it's, you know, ignorance of the laws is not an excuse, but, uh, yeah, you know, at will, as you were sort of describing, there isn't even really clear how to be in compliance. Like, you guys basically made up your own sort of compliance proposal and went back and forth, went for, back and forth with the CFTC on it until they said it looks okay. It's not like you, you know, drive on the highway until you feel like there's an appropriate speed and the cop says, oh, that was a little too fast, it was a little too slow, and you just sort of feel it out, like, there aren't rules in place. And so everyone just feels like they're kind of making stuff up until we get to a good spot. So I, I love the Etherscan example. I think it's such a good example. I mean, because because it's true, like you can read and write to any smart contract through Etherscan. And it is really kind of like the most generalized interface for interacting with things on the blockchain. I really think that, you know, what the CFTC takes issue with is facilitating margin trading to retail traders. Right. Is Etherscan a product that is designed to allow retail traders to come and, you know, trade leverage products? Absolutely not. (laughs) Like, could you do that? Yeah. Like, maybe you could. I don't know. It'd be kind of funky and and the user experience would, you know, not be the greatest. But yeah, I think it really comes down to, you know, what is the intent here? Are you making these things accessible and easy for retail traders to access? And, you know, I, we I, we actually don't you know we don't take issue with the conclusion of, of you know the settlement with the CFTC like you know these leverage tokens are probably within their you know like probably within their jurisdiction and they probably do have uh, you know some degree of authority over these things um, so it, yeah I, I think like you know it it, it feels um, it feels like they're they are trying to protect everyday traders from going in and doing something that they shouldn't be or that they, you know, perhaps the CFTC thinks they're not sophisticated enough to do. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm going to push on this thought experiment a little bit further because I can tell you like who uses Etherscan to interact with smart contracts. You said, okay, well, Etherscan is not designed for retail. Um, It's not designed for institutions either. Like who is using Etherscan? People who are technically sophisticated, maybe even marginally tech, you you don't have to be that sophisticated to use Etherscan. But people who are technically sophisticated are not institutions. They're like people who know how to code or just know knows some basics of interacting with smart contracts or interacting with the EVM. These are also retail, right? These are not uh, institutions or, you know, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, CFTC registered uh, 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 folks, you know. So um, I don't know of any hedge funds that use Etherscan, but I know a lot of people who use Etherscan to interact with contracts. Anyway, I, the, the point is not so much that like, hey, there's this one weird example that will break your brain. Um, the point, I think, is is closer to what Tom was was uh, alluding to, which is that it's it's very hard to build stuff when there aren't a clear set of rules. And now, you know, they could argue like, well, look, now now you know the rules. Now that we've done these three settlements, uh, if, if, you, if you list these uh, these tokens that are leverage tokens, uh, then, you know, you're in trouble and you're you're violating the CEA. Fine. You know, I, I think one can acknowledge that that's a reasonable stance for them to take uh, when it comes to, you know, what touches U.S. customers. Um, that said, uh, it took them basically until 2023 
and these three settlements for that to happen. Like my understanding, whatever it is that took place with Uniswap happened behind closed doors. Um, it was not announced to the public like, hey, here's the rules. Now, again, these settlements are small. They, they did not try to get an arm and a leg from uh, the three companies that, that they settled with. But uh, it's still part of, it feels still part and parcel of the same story, which is a lack of regulatory clarity and regulation by enforcement. You know, it's like this is the exact same thing that we've been complaining about from, from the SEC that we're now seeing from the CFTC. Now, at least the CFTC is more consistent and their arguments are clearer and they don't imply the wholesale destruction of the industry, right? The SEC basically wants to see this industry not exist. I think the CFTC wants to say, look, leverage tokens, that's our shit. You're not allowed to touch that. Everything else, you know, go have fun. Which I can, I can you know, I can, I can be down with that. I just wish that there was more clarity of communication beyond, hey, here are three settlements, you know, go figure out what this means for yourself. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, what I will say too, though, is, you know, the lack of clarity that we're all feeling uh, is, you know, kind of enthusiasts and active participants in this space. I think they're, you know, within these regulatory agencies, they're kind of struggling with the same lack of clarity, right? Like they also don't have a rule book for, or an instruction manual for like, how do you deal with a disruptive new technology that flips your entire model of financial transactions on its head? And I, you know, I think there are probably a lot of people in these agencies that are excited about crypto and, you know, probably participate in crypto. And we're all kind of trying to converge on something that makes sense, but it is hard. And I think, you know, regulators. Yeah, but, I mean, but rulemaking, rulemaking is in their purview, right? If you're at the CS, SEC or CFTC, you can make rules and say, hey, here's how it works. If you have front end, you list leverage tokens, you're in trouble, right? That violates CEA. They can, they can, they can do that. You know, obviously I, I think there's basically been no agency that has offered really complete clarity about uh, how crypto ought to be regulated. Um, and it's not as though this is an impossible task. If you look around the world, at other first world countries that have robust regulatory regimes, there's a lot of clarity in different places, which shows that it can be done. It's not as though this is some gargantuan, it's not, it's not as though this technology is so impenetrable and so complex. I mean, it's been like six years since you guys started operating. Clearly, there are ways that you can look at what's going on in the space and say, aha, here's how this ought to, this, here's how it ought to work. Here are the investor protections we should put into place. As long as you stay within these bounds, you're fine. Um, you know, if the UK can do it, if the EU can do it, if the Middle East can do it, uh, I, I have no doubt that American regulators can also do it. They're, they're choosing not to. And again, I'm sure that there are complex incentives that are playing into why it is that the agencies are not willing to do rulemaking and give more clarity to the industry. But they're doing so in a way that's really harming the innovation in the U.S. Anyway, all right, I'll, I'll stop soapboxing. So I, I, I wanted to move on a little bit. So first of all, Will, thanks for sharing your story about what happened with the CFTC. And I'm glad that you guys are able to move on with you know, building out Matcha and zero X, the zero X ecosystem and not getting bogged down with uh, everything that's happened here. I wanted to talk a little bit about this phenomenon that we've seen that you guys are in, in many ways a part of, of these protocols that also have companies attached to them, where there's kind of two things happening at the same time. There's a, there's a company that has revenues, has investors, has, you know, a, a set of equity holders on the cap table. And then there's a protocol that has, uh, that of course has a token um, and the two things might initially be aligned. They might initially be basically more or less the same, uh, and they diverge over time. So the most obvious example of this that was in the news recently is Uniswap. So Uniswap, uh, obviously the, the Uni token corresponds to Uniswap, the on-chain protocol. 
Uniswap recently announced, not recently, I mean, I don't know, a month and a half ago or something, two months ago, they announced Uniswap X, which is their aggregator RFQ system, whatever it is that is not live yet, but is supposed to be coming live in the near future. And uh, Uniswap X is going to be taking fees, but the fees do not go to the Uni token holders. They go to Uniswap Labs, the company. And Uniswap Labs, the company did a fundraise. Uh, they raised like 100 million or something led by, I think it was Polychain and a bunch of other investors. And so you would now have this divergence in Uniswap, the, the on-chain protocol, and Uniswap Labs, the company that is in some way, in some way, not, not totally, but in some way, in competition with uh, Uniswap itself to try to accrue more fees on their front end rather than having the fees accrue to the protocol. Now, of course, Uniswap is weird. There are no protocol fees. So it's kind of a, I don't know, it's maybe a bad example in that regard. But this is this this phenomenon, which also, my understanding is that that's how 0x works as well, where you have Matcha. Uh, Matcha, you know, the it, it, it's under the purview of 0x Labs, the company, which did a separate fundraise. And then there's a 0x token, which is more uh, tied directly to the protocol that's on chain. Now, I personally have had a lot of criticisms of this structure. I mean, you, you've seen the structure now arise many times and uh, among many different protocols. I want to get your thoughts on how you think about this structure where you have a company, you have a protocol, and the two have uh, differing assets and differing incentives. Yeah, that's it's a good question. And, and it, it's an interesting one, too, because it's, I don't know, if you asked, if you asked six years ago, would we be here in this kind of current setup? And would this kind of be the kind of the playbook for, for a lot of company, companies or kind of influential entities in the crypto space? I don't know that the that we would have you know, thought this would be the outcome. I think this is the result of some tension between public goods building things that are intended to be infrastructure that anyone can use and anyone can benefit from and other projects incentives to, you know, either build on that existing infrastructure or to build their own, <laughs> um, essentially, and, and create their own infrastructure with like their own token, perhaps. Um, this, you know, this is something that we, we kind of experienced ourselves in 2018 and kind of found out the hard way, the downsides of not having a direct relationship with the end customer. Um, so yeah, we were building Zerox protocol. All we're building is open source developer tools, go build whatever you want with it. We're not charging you any fees. This thing just exists for you to use. And really, like, if the thing is engineered well, there really isn't that much incentive to fork it and go kind of create your own version of the infrastructure. But that's when you start to add in, you know, lots of, of you know, investment and, and funding available and, you know, kind of the, the model of success is, is creating a piece of public infrastructure with like a token associated with it, like a governance token there's a lot stronger incentive for, for like newcomers in the space to kind of compete and, and introduce their own infrastructure versus building on existing infrastructure. Uh, and this is something that, you know, we, yeah, we, we saw in 2018, like this, this product uh, DDEX uh, was the kind of most popular marketplace built on top of zero uh, X. They did an excellent job. They built a really great consumer product. They had some decent traction, a uh, large user base in Asia and we were thrilled, like, you know, this is why Zero X exists. Like we wanted to help people build cool products and innovate and use this infrastructure. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we invested so much of our time and effort into 
trying to, you know, help them. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I, I think like they, they decided to kind of create their own infrastructure and, and some of their reasoning was, was, you know, they wanted to be able to build for their customers more quickly and effectively versus relying on, you know, a platform that sits underneath them or a protocol that sits underneath them. So I, I think like a lot of the big projects in the space, like, like the Uniswaps two, for example, come in with like the best of intentions Hey, let's create this piece of technology that everyone can use. And, you know, yes, protocol fees exist. It's a way to kind of fund the public good. It's like taxes. So, you know, everyone benefits from the services provided by the government, but the government needs to pay for the roads, pay for the firefighters, pay for the police, et cetera. And so you need, you need to have some revenue, but, you know, if you can just kind of create a new, a new nation, like a new, a new government and, and, you know, start bringing in, you know, your kind of like your tax revenues uh, without paying them to someone else, there's a pretty strong incentive to, to yeah, kind of fork and, and do your own thing. Yeah. Uniswap versus SushiSwap is a great example. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you, you know, so back in the day, and I, I remember a lot of this playing out back in 2017, 2018, you know, 0x once upon a time was, was super dominant in the deck space. Uh, and you guys, you guys really tried to be a platform. And uh, this is something that nowadays as a VC, I strongly discourage people from trying to be platforms. Uh, and ZeroX is actually one of the, it, it's one of the examples I give that I think is quite instructive of why that tends not to work. Because you guys were trying really, really hard to attract relayers, which were basically these, you know, people who built exchanges on top of the ZeroX protocol. And the problem is that either one, the relayers that were, you were attracting to build on top of ZeroX sucked. So they just weren't very good. Or the ones that were good, they were so good that they were like, wait, why are we paying zero? Why are we allowing their thing to be the back end? Why don't we just force fork it and have our own back end and have our own token and do our own thing? And like, you know, middle finger to zero X. And um, it felt like that was probably the teachable moment for the zero X team of like, hey, this is no good. We cannot attract, we cannot try to get other people to build on our rails. We need to build on our own rails and start moving up the stack to directly own the consumer, right? Instead of attracting relayers, we're so much better than any, like we're so much better at building products than anybody else who we're attracting to build on top of us. We should just build the products. We should just build the ecosystem. And I think that is in general, the correct insight from entrepreneurs is that, okay, it's fine to build infrastructure, but probably you are the best person who is positioned to actually be able to build something that is consumer facing, that is retail facing. And it seems like that's where Xerox eventually arrived at with Xerox API and then Matcha as the primary way in which people were going to end up consuming zero X liquidity. Now, all that being said, well, so first of all, let me, let me pause there. Tom, as somebody who was working on product at that time and making a lot of these, thinking through a lot of this strategically, what do you think of that story? Yeah, I think that is pretty accurate. You need to kind of be in control of your own destiny. And I think overwhelmingly, you know, having, it's sort of this, this, you know, bimodal distribution where, Either you are a true protocol network that has, you know, this nice flat distribution of millions of applications that serve you sort of like an Ethereum almost, or you are sort of true, almost vertically integrated in some ways of having that sort of experience with, with the user. And the in-between is, is where you kind of get, get caught and you're sort of the worst of both worlds. I think um, it, in some ways, it's also sort of a testament to some of the sometimes perverse incentives in the industry around launching a token. I think some of the forks or derivatives of 0x that I saw were not meaningfully different or even better in any way, but it's a great story around 
we have our own protocol that, you know, complements our thing and we can have a token around it. I think, frankly, you know, the DDEX fork was kind of in this bucket where it wasn't as if, oh, 0x is too general. We need something more optimized for our use case. It was we get this app and we may as well have a token and have our own protocol and, you know, kind of kind of do it ourselves. But I think going back to your question around equity versus uh, uh, the protocol, I, I kind of see I'm of two minds of this. One, right, is, hey, Xerox, the protocol, massively more successful as a result of, you know, Matcha than it would be otherwise, right? Matcha is driving volume through the protocol and it's driving, it's bringing on liquidity and like that all flows through the protocol. And so it's sort of like, you know, you can go, you know, run an instance of Mongo through MongoDB, the company, and, you know, hey, that sort of supports the open source software. The other being, hey, like, you know, maybe this is in some ways um, a distraction and these people should be working for the protocol or, or you know, owe the protocol in some way or the fees should be going to it. I, I can't help but think this is also, frankly, a, a byproduct of the regulatory environment that we're in. That we're in. Wouldn't it be sweet if, you know, swaps from Uniswap X went into a DAO and a treasury and went back to the token holders and, hey, this whole thing sort of flowed nicely and we aligned incentives. Unfortunately, that would most likely make Uni look like a security. And so instead... It's just way simpler to have this front end, take a fee, um, have it stay in the company. And so um, it, it's, I, I think, kind of unfortunate, but also just very understandable. Um, you know, if I were a founder, I'd be in, in the same boat as to um, why you would maybe not want, want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I buy that story that it's a response to the regulatory pressure of not wanting to make your token a security if it's tied to like some consumer facing front end thing that you're maintaining that has backend servers and stuff. Um, at the same time, it it strikes me as not just so like one thing that that I really don't like is it's sort of double dipping in that you are raising money uh, twice and you're getting this valuation twice one for the token and then again for the equity and the equity almost by definition I mean perhaps not because if you can say okay well it's creating more value net and it's helping the overall protocol and so actually it's just creating value but take Uniswap as an example Uniswap is probably the best example because it's so dominant in DeFi. You know, it's not as though Uniswap X is likely to increase the overall market for crypto, right? Or for DeFi trading. It's very likely to take market share from, you know, the one inches or the, you know, other aggregators or whatever, or other RFQ systems. Um, if it's successful, maybe it's not, you know, the, the NFT platform obviously was not successful. Uh, but let's assume that it is. If it is successful, then, and, and let's assume that it's taking fees, those fees almost by definition must be coming at the expense of some fees that are being paid somewhere else. And given that most of the liquidity in, in crypto is on Uniswap's, uh, Uniswap itself, if more of that volume is going through their RFQ system directly to market makers and Uniswap is taking a fee for standing in between, then that's less volume going to Uniswap the protocol, which means that Uniswap the protocol, you need the token, is going to be capturing less value, right? Again, you, you can argue, well, but it's going to increase the market because it's so much more efficient, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I would say Uniswap X is maybe a weird example, too, just because of the whole RFQ off-chain component, which maybe maybe we could get into a little bit. I think of maybe more just like Uniswap.org, like the the interface. I think Uniswap is massively more successful and and valuable. You need yes. the token. A result of as having this amazing you know consumer product effectively, I, I think it would be great if consumer product development and protocol development could be more incentive aligned and, and more aligned in terms of where value captures. But I, I just don't see that today. I think it's very, very difficult to, to do that. And I, I agree with you. I think it is, it is very difficult. And again, I feel for founders who are kind of put in this regulatory pincer 
uh, that you know, no doubt they want everything to be aligned. But the other thing, of course, when you have an equity company and you have a, a, a token and the cap table of your equity diverges from the sort of token cap table, so to speak, then now all of a sudden you really do have two sets of stakeholders who are each vying for the same pie, right? In some sense, you might want it to be that actually, you know what, let's lower the Uniswap fees and let's increase the fees on Uniswap X. Now, literally they're as low as they could be right now on Uniswap, uh, which is zero. But, you know, in principle, um, let's imagine Uniswap did introduce a fee, right? Well, the Uniswap, the foundation would kind of be like, well, look, we have, we have some uni tokens, but we have a lot more Uniswap equity or Uniswap labs or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so we actually really want for Uniswap labs to accrue more of that value as opposed to Uniswap tokens. Maybe we've already sold a bunch, maybe, you know, whatever. Maybe we don't own as much as we otherwise like to. And so you, you, you have these divergent stakeholders and these divergent stakeholders ultimately, just economically, you would expect there to be tension and competition for the same, sort of zero-sum competition for the same fees between these two entities. Now, not every single protocol that has an equity and protocol uh, or sorry, token component ends up in this kind of contest but it seems like a very real risk to me that you'd expect to arise that there's no longer alignment between the equity holders and the token holders. So, okay, Tom and I have been going back and forth. Will, what are, what are your thoughts on this, given the state of the Zero X ecosystem and how the token versus uh, Zero X labs interact with each other? Yeah, I, I mean, there's absolutely tension. I mean, ultimately, if you're trying to build a public good infrastructure, you're not as close to the end customer. And uh, I think, you know, the value, the opportunity to capture value is, is the, the closer you are to the end user, the, you know, the, the easier it is to capture value. And if you look at MetaMask as an example, you know, they're able to capture, you know, 80, 80 something basis point fees on, on swap volume. Uh, yeah, I mean, is MetaMask, you know, are their incentives aligned with kind of the swap or decentralized exchange protocols that their users are kind of using through MetaMask. It's like, no, not really. They're kind of trying to achieve different different goals. Like they, they kind of have different objectives. A, a couple of examples, I think, of like open ecosystems where there is a DAO and it is active, like proactively deploying capital in a way that like grows and benefits the ecosystem. And there is an ecosystem. It's like Ethereum. You know, some of these layer two networks, like Optimism is a great example. They have like a really, you know, a, a big DAO and very active and lo deploying lots of capital in ways that are probably beneficial for the ecosystem that's that's being built on top of, of uh, Optimism. You know, that, that seems to work quite well. And I don't know, it feels like uh, some of that kind of ecosystem incentive alignment gets lost as you work your way up the stack, maybe. That's fair. Kind of an interesting opposite example is like OpenSea. So OpenSea kind of did the opposite. They started out as a, you know, traditional for-profit uh, company and, you know, ultimately kind of deployed their own protocol. Seaport. Seaport, yes. But yeah, they deployed Seaport and, and, you know, with the intention of kind of allowing anyone to build on top of it and including like some of the NFT space is very competitive. It's like fierce competition. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious, like, are there competitors using Seaport? If I recall, Blur ended up using Seaport in large part to evade the uh, OpenSea block lists. Uh, so th wasn't, there, wasn't that um, a big part of Blur's yeah. uh, early strategy? Well, yeah, and, you know, they're seeing aggregators, so they get it through there. And there are some smaller marketplaces that also use Seaport. So, you know, I, I, I hear that example. 
I think it's a question of, hey, how is value capture represented <laughs> externally, right? Seaport kind of looks and it is a public good, but I don't think there's there's an assumption that people can invest into it or accrue value into it some way, just some software that you can use if you want to. And I think that's kind of the, the tension um, is right now, it seems like, and I think optimism is actually a great example. It seems like there's sort of this, this uh, like I said, it, it sort of bimodal uh, outcome in terms of value capture of equity or token. Hard to see very many examples of sort of a nice, happy split. And that is sort of, you know, I think unresolved in the, in the, in the industry. Um, and it's, it's not clear how to resolve it. Yeah, this is, um, I, so I don't think this is something we're going to be able to get to the bottom of in this conversation naturally, but it's a, it's a, it's a tension that I see again and again arise as protocols mature, you know, uh, especially once the protocol has a sense that like, okay, we're in a good place from a regulatory perspective. Uh, I don't think that anyone wants to come after us or like, you know, kind of break our door down except maybe the SEC wants to break everyone's door down. But we still want to do more. We still want to create more things. We still want to, you know, uh, um, be aggressive in building stuff that's retail facing and user facing. But if we have, as Tom mentioned, if we have the profits or the revenue from that go back to the DAO, then it looks super centralized. Now it looks like, okay, efforts of others, blah, blah, blah. So let's just take a different structure. Let's take a, uh, let, let's use a traditional equity structure and just make this a regular business. And in a way, uh, it is it is cleaner from a legal perspective, but it does end up impoverishing token holders to, to, to at least some degree. Uh, if, if it, in an ideal world, we would like it to be the case that a company could decide that, hey, we are just going to donate our revenue to the token holders. And you could, you could have a, a company structure that uh, continues to work on the protocol and create things that are built on top of the public goods. Um, but all the value still flows back to the token holders without incurring any kind of regulatory concerns. But we're not there. We don't live in that world. And so we're, we're kind of stuck in the world we are in, which is that we're probably going to continue to see more of this, more of this thing where like you create this initial shell that is the token, that is the public good. Uh, you build the protocol out and then you set it off to sea. And then like that is just floating out there. It's just floating out there in the ocean. And then you start building your company on the shore. You know, I don't love that model, but I think it might be a model that we're stuck with for the foreseeable future until there is significantly more clarity around how you can do these things without violating securities laws. Hmm. I'm not actually not sure that it's securities laws that are making it hard to kind of align incentives. I think it just has more to do with who's doing the hard work and who's getting paid for it. Like there's a lot of DAOs out there that are, they have capital to deploy and, you know, they do deploy it. Is it being deployed in a way that is beneficial for everyone that's potentially building on top of that that platform or that that protocol? It, it takes a ton of work to build something that people want, and that the people that are doing that hard work ultimately, you know, the value should probably flow back to them. And in a lot of cases, the people that are doing that hard work are employees at a company, and. I, you know, I don't know that there are too many examples of DAOs that can justify their existence long-term yet. Mm. Um, I think mm. there are a lot of DAOs that have, you know, a significant treasure trove of, of, of capital at their disposal. Are they going to be able to like bridge the gap to sustainability long-term? Like their, their protocol, their platform is creating enough value. People are paying to use it, uh, that this thing can kind of 
reach, uh, yeah, kind of like get the flywheel spinning. I, I don't know. It's pretty hard. I don't think we've seen any examples. Maybe the closest thing is like, yeah, I think layer two networks are probably the closest thing we've seen because they actually do have economics that seem to maybe be sustainable. Uh, layer two networks, mm. you know, generate decent revenue and that can be reinvested into the ecosystem and having an ecosystem actually makes sense for layer two networks. If, is, if they support, you know, generalized smart contracts and, but I don't know. The entire space has just been so flush with capital and everyone has been operating at a loss uh, for so long that I just don't know that like we've actually seen a steady state where like value creation and value capture are sustainable. Yeah. No, that's a fair Does that point. make sense? Um, it does. It does. Um, I don't know that I totally agree, but I, but I see where you're coming from. And I, I agree with you that you know, being able to align incentives, especially when, you know, a protocol has existed for a long time and has a very divergent set of stakeholders um, can be can be challenging without creating a, a different structure for the company that's actually trying to accrue revenue and, and uh, or the product, I should say, that's trying to accrue revenue and, and really become profitable. Um, that said, we're we're up on time, so we, we got to wrap. Uh, but Will, really wanted to thank you for being as candid as you've been with us and walking us through everything that, that took place at 0x. Um, you guys are the OGs among OGs and, uh, really hope you guys continue to crush it and, uh, that we, that we get another, another seven years out of you guys continuing to build in the space. Uh, thank you, Hasib. And thank you, Tom. Awesome chatting with you and, uh, yeah, uh, excited for the next seven years. Always. All right. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.